So as you're turning to Matthew chapter 1, I want to add my word of greeting to those you've already heard. In the name of the virgin-born Son of Mary, the Son of God, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. I think at Christmas especially, it's, it's a gift to be in a familiar place with favorite people. So this will be uh, one of my best Christmas gifts to be with you on the third Sunday in Advent. Going to begin in verse 18, we're going to go to verse 25. Normally at Christmas I read from the authorized version for obvious reasons, and um, I'll do that today. I often say at Christmas when we stand up over a Christmas text, I remember the first responsibility of a, of a physician which is do no harm. This, the narrative itself is so luminous, so glorious, so perfect that it's only with fear and trembling that you make any commentary on it at all. So the best part will be the reading. So in honor of God and his word, let's stand. Matthew 1, beginning in verse 18, we're going to study this crucible of testing that Joseph was put in by the design of the God of Israel. Hear the word of God. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise, when as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privately. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Then Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, and took unto him his wife, and knew her not until she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he caused, called his name Jesus. Gracious Father, may we, uh, as Joseph did, quickly do what you bid us do, no matter how mysterious, no matter how laborious, no matter how onerous, um, and sometimes, apparently, no matter how futile. And we pray that the time we spend right now over this text would advance us to that higher place, that higher availability and usefulness in your kingdom. For we ask it, in the name of great Mary's greater son, Jesus, and for his sake, amen. Please be seated. Now, there are obviously so many ways that we could approach the Christmas story. And I think what I would like to do is to study the text um, under four different rubrics. First, historical, and then personal. Not personal for us, but personal for the players in the drama. 
and then spiritual, addressing the question, well, what, is, what was God doing in this narrative? And then we might say consequential, which does have, have to do with us personally, personally and with everyone and with the whole world and with all of history. Uh, first of all, historical. Uh, let me just say that secular people refuse to admit the miraculous into any body of historical evidence. By presupposition, they eliminate the possibility of the miraculous and insist that that can't be a part of history. That would be an intrusion, an aberration. Philosophers like David Hume uh, advanced or, or helped to pioneer that thesis as supported by new atheists today and by all kinds of philosophers uh, and secularists. I would like to say that one of the most overwhelming proofs of the truth of this narrative is who wrote it. Either the thing is true or it's a conspiracy. If it's a conspiracy, it's an intentional deception. Now think of the way a deception could be put across. There must be a level of, of plausibility, of credibility. And think of first century observant Jews, the overwhelming minority, uh, majority of first century Jews hated Gentiles. But there was a group of people they hated worse than the Gentiles. And that was the Samaritans. The Samaritans were half Jewish, half Gentiles. But you know, there was another group of people they hated more than the Samaritans or the Gentiles. Gentiles couldn't help it that we're uh, Gentiles. We poor Gentiles, we can't help that. That's not a choice we made. The Samaritans couldn't help it that they were Samaritans. But there was a lower rung of greater loathing among first century Jews, and that was the tax collectors. The tax collectors could have helped it. But for filthy lucre, they were traitors. And they had sold out to Rome. Now, if it was a conspiracy, think about this for a minute. Matthew, you're a tax collector. You've got great credibility with the Jews. Why don't you write the gospel to the Jews? Can you imagine? What more proof do we need that the thing has to be authentic? If it were a fictional product of a conspiracy, Matthew would have been the last person to be chosen to write the first book of the canonical New Testament, to write the gospel to the Jews. That would be madness, absolute madness. And yet here it is. Here's the story. And it involves a miracle. Of course it does. Um, natural law is what secular people call what happens. And, and natural law is what God does on an ordinary work day. Uh, when God wants to do something uh, on a holiday, something a little bit different from his ordinary work day, he works a miracle. And it's very appropriate that we calibrate our holidays to the holidays God took. God took a holiday from natural law once and a virgin conceived and a perfect man was born with no human father. And we made that holiday that we call Christmas. Uh, one day, a man who'd been dead three days did not rot in the tomb. He was reanimated and rose up in glory on the third 
morning. God took a holiday and made a dead man alive physically on that day in the first century. And we made that day our holiday that God took. We call it Easter. And so on and, and, and so on. The thing is, is definitely, definitely historical. The evidence for it, the, the miracle is it, overwhelming. But just the only point I'll make right now is if it had been made up, it would have been made up with a different author, an author with greater credibility among the Jews. The second thing I want to talk about is, is the personal nature of the narrative. And what I mean by this is what was personal to Mary and Joseph. Um, at a larger level, this thing is, a, is about the most momentous categories. But, but at, a, at a minimum, it, it's about a marriage. And I worry a little bit when we talk about marriage. I, I worry on Mother's Day because there, we make a big deal out of it, and we should, but there, there are people sitting out there who wanted to be mothers, but, but they're not, or they weren't, or, or, or they never will be. And I always think about them when we're extolling mothers. And I'm about to talk about marriage, and I know there are people here who've never been married, maybe who would like to be married. I know there are people here who uh, were formerly married, and they remember that marriage, and they, they, they long for the, the, the wonderful things that they no longer experience now. I know there are people here who maybe are in a marriage they don't enjoy, and they don't relish, and it's, it's kind of a sore subject for them. Uh, does it ever trouble you a little bit when you think about the things that are not going to be in heaven? You, you find it a little bit disconcerting to think that there's not going to be any sun there? There's not going to be any sea there? Do you really want to go to a place where there's no sun? Where there's no sea? Does it ever trouble you uh, that Jesus said there's not going to be any marriage there? It's, it's going to, be, going to be like the angels who neither marry nor give in marriage. Does it bother you a little bit? Can you think, can I really be happy without my spouse? Uh, let me tell you why that shouldn't bother you. It's not going to be less than the sun. I've got a home in glory land that outshines the sun. The glory from Jesus' face in his unveiled glory will make that sun look like a shadow. Did it ever occur to you that there's a majesty far greater than the sea? That the sea was lent its majesty, a created majesty, by an original majesty that we will, would find overwhelming had we not been given glorified bodies? And friends, it's not going to be less than marriage. It's going to be more than marriage. And for those of you who are never married, does Jesus not teach us in the story of Lazarus and the rich man through the words of Abraham from heaven, speaking to the man in hell. Uh, in this life, Lazarus only had the crumbs from your table, and now he's feasting at, at, at my table. Does that not tell us that heaven is a place of compensations? Does it not suggest that what we missed here will get there exponentially, something exponentially Greater. I remember when that precious Elizabeth Robertson, I stood up uh, for her service. I was just like the day before I returned to Budapest. And she never married. She was a librarian. 
And I thought, she's a bride now. She's met her bridegroom now. You know, the gospel is a romance. It's imaginatively difficult, if not impossible, for uh, men to uh, imagine ourselves in the role of brides. At least I hope it's hard for you. And, um, and, but it's not physical. It's not going to be sexual. It's spiritual. It's not going to be biological. It's going to be theological. And it's going to be more and better than the best experience of, of marriage here. We think of the spiritual as something wispy and vague and insubstantial. It's not. The physical here is insubstantial compared to the substance of the spiritual. Now, count on it. Count on it. But this, at a minimum, is, is the story of a marriage. I remember, <clears throat> I remember those decades that I was trying to finish War and Peace. It took me longer to read it than it took Tolstoy to write it. And in and, and the edition that I read, the, there was a scholarly introduction by a critic, and the scholar said, War and Peace is about marriage. And I thought, what? War and Peace is about the Napoleonic invasion of Russia in the early 19th century. What do you mean it's about marriage? And then I finally read the book over uh, several years, and it's, it's basically it's about three families, the Bezuhoffs and the uh, Bolkonskis and the, uh, oh, I'll think of the other one in a minute. Um, it's escaping me now. But, um, and it's about the marriages between those two families. It really is a book about marriage. It made me think of a, of a quote by Chesterton that I've shared here, and I won't go over it again, but he was talking about why uh, the Iliad and the Odyssey and Job were classics of world literature. And I was thinking, you know, those, those books are about marriage. You think the Iliad is about warfare and the, the Odyssey is about a, a long journey home and Job is about suffering. Well, at one level, the Iliad is about a man trying to get his wife back. And the Odyssey is about a man trying to get back to his wife. And Job is about a man trying to get his wife off his back. And this, this is a story about marriage. It's a story about uh, Joseph and uh, about somebody who was um, just really looking forward, as most uh, bridegrooms are, um, to being married. And then, uh, <clears throat> then his heart was broken. Now, I'm going to get to the spiritual in a minute, but there's something we need to understand about God, and that is this. We can trust him with a, with a broken heart. And we need to understand that broken hearts are by his design, at least in this sense. He could have made the world in such a way that our hearts would not have been broken, but he didn't. Or he could have fashioned a history for us to avoid a broken heart, but he didn't. And here's the really overwhelming thing, and maybe the thing we miss when we read this story. The angel came to Mary before she conceived. She got the word from God, from an angel, before she got pregnant. 
Joseph learned about it another way. And I don't know how long it took for uh, Joseph to uh, pass from that moment when he realized that his fiancée, as far as he knew, had betrayed him. And the time when the angel in the dream uh, set, set the record straight. I don't know how long it took, but I'll guarantee you his heart was broken during that time. It was absolutely broken. <clears throat> and what do you do with a broken heart? You can go like this at God, as some do. God, why did you let that happen? Why would you do that? What kind of God can you be to permit such, a, such suffering on my part or someone else's part? Or you can go like this at God. <clears throat> you know, the Psalms are a record of what a man did with his broken heart. I think I, I didn't look it up. I guess I could have. I could have gone through the 150 Psalms and found out how many Psalms are just about, Lord, everything's just great. I think there are a few psalms like that. And I think it's a very, very small minority. Uh, David taught Israel to, to war. David taught Israel to worship. And David took, taught Israel to bring trouble and disappointment and a broken heart to God and to lay it before him and to worship. Timothy Keller in his book on the psalms says that the psalms address every facet of human emotion. It's an amazing claim. I think it's true. Every facet of human emotion. And friends, it's not like you're going to avoid a broken heart if you refuse to worship God. And if you refuse to bring your heart to God. Um, this, is, this is a place of shadows where we live. It's a place of losses and crosses. We're all mortal. And the people we love are mortal. But I, I'm not authorized to do this. Maybe there's a reason it wasn't done. There's, there's a death that wasn't announced this morning. Sally Clink lost her brother early this morning. I'm not sure we mentioned that. Pray for Sally and the family. Uh, but, you know, unless we're alive when Jesus comes, this may sound like a morbid thought, but there's no truer truth than this. Unless we're alive when Jesus comes, we have one of two options. We're either going to die, and unless we die suddenly, that's going to involve some, some heartache and suffering on our part, or we're going to watch those we care about die. There is no other option here. It makes us long and pray for the coming of the Lord. It makes us glory in the fact that he's bringing us to a place of only arrivals and no departures, where there is no death. It makes us thank God that Jesus died to render death a temporary inconvenience for us, not a permanent tragedy. But in this place, there are broken hearts. And Joseph had a broken heart. And what he believed to be a crushing Disgrace was actually an unimaginable, and I underline the word unimaginable, privilege. The ancients were not superstitious. He knew that a woman did not uh, come with child without male agency. There were only a few possibilities imaginable to him. 
Well, let me say this about what the Lord allowed him to do. Why would God not tell him first so he wouldn't go through that agony? I don't know all the reasons why, but I know this. We would have never known him if he had been tipped off. We would have never known of his virtue, of his character, of his excellence. She's humiliated me, but I'm going to spare her. She's betrayed me, but I'm going to cushion her experience. She's going to suffer enough anyway. I'm going to protect her as best I can in the circumstances. We would have never known of the spiritual nobility of Joseph if he had been informed all along of what was happening. We have asked the Lord, you know, we may say, why did God conceive of a place with as much suffering as there is here? Why couldn't he be made a place where there is no suffering? He did. It's called heaven. Well, why couldn't he have made creatures who never suffer or die? He did. They're called angels. Yes, but why would he make creatures like ourselves to, to live in a place like this? I don't know all the answers to that. We may protest our own existence. If we hadn't suffered, we'd have to be perfect. If we were perfect, we'd be somebody else. We wouldn't be ourselves. What we're really protesting is the fact that he made us instead of making someone else. But I know this. I know that if he hadn't allowed us to abide in a place of suffering, we would have never known him. We would have never known his grace. We would have never known his mercy. We would have never known his forgiveness. We would have never known his capacity for sacrificial love. We would have never known a substitute and a sin bearer and a savior. We would have never known Christ in the fullness of his, of his love. And so we languish for a little while, but we wait, and we wait with hope. Joseph suffered for a little while, but then we come to this place in this text where an angel appeared to him in a dream in verse 20. Well, what's, what's happening spiritually? Well, um, we come to a place where we're ripe for commands, for assignments. And God set the stage to give a, a great assignment to Joseph. And the assignment was this. Don't worry. I control everything. And then take care of her. Take care of her. I do uh, premarital counseling from time to time. I'm not a very skilled counselor. I'm not a trained counselor. I'm a very experienced counselor. It's not because I'm good. It's because I'm free. I don't kid myself about that. And uh, for many decades, my premarital counseling has been fairly formulaic. I usually meet five times. Uh, the first time to talk about what marriage is. The second time to talk about uh, the biblical commands and responsibilities between the husband and wife, the third time to talk about difficulties and things to always do, things to never, never do, the fourth time to plan the ceremony, and the fifth time to, just to coach the husband and just say things that he needs to hear or she doesn't necessarily 
need to hear. Recently, as a matter of fact, the last two times I've, I've said something I'd never said before. It's kind of a new insight for me in my eighth decade. And that is that I think that marriage may be the greatest spiritual privilege. We usually think of it as a physical privilege. I, I shouldn't say privilege, luxury. The greatest spiritual luxury. How is it a luxury? It's a luxury because we know exactly what God wants us to do. Realize how many spheres of life we think we know what God wants, but there's no chapter and verse for it. You may think you know where to go to college, or if you should go to college, or what you should major in, or what your profession should be, or where you should live, or who you should marry, or which job you should take. But you don't know for absolutely sure, do you? It's a tremendous luxury to know absolutely for sure what we're supposed to do. And for married people, we have very detailed, specific instructions and what to do. Ephesians 5, Genesis 2, 1 Peter 3. We know exactly what we're supposed to do. And the angel told Joseph exactly what he was supposed to do. You take care of that girl. You protect her. You shelter her. You provide for her. You love her. It's a tremendous spiritual luxury. And I'm doing something through your marriage that you can't imagine. Something redemptive. Because this child who's going to be born, verse 21, shall save his people from their sins. Your marriage is to be redemptive. I'm going to work redemption, salvation, through your marriage. You know, I, there are people who don't trust the Bible or trust the God of the Bible who try to agitate women and uh, pretend that somehow they're degraded by the biblical text. Nothing could be further from the truth, especially if you knew the conditions of women in the generations that the Bible was written in. But, I mean, I can imagine it, it would get a little bit uh, fatiguing for a woman to read the first 17 verses of this genealogy because, with a very few exceptions, we're told that the man begat a son, another man who begat another son, and then we get to this uh, grand exception where the mother is mentioned, his mother Mary, and that she brought forth her son, and the man is left out of it. No male agency in the conception. And it's evident God is doing something different. My pastor was in a plane crash on January 17th, and uh, his four friends who were on the plane with him were killed. He was the only survivor. And when an elder at Harvest Church came to the door and greeted Catherine Vaughn, uh, how do you say that your husband was in a plane crash and he's still alive? Nobody else is alive, but he's still alive. How, how do you start that conversation? You know what he said? 
He said, God is up to something. God is up to something. You know, that's a great way to steward agony, isn't it? It's a great way to steward tragedy, horror, pain. And God is up to something. This didn't happen without, behind God's back. It didn't happen because he blinked or because he was distracted with something else. And God is in control. He's in control. And this is the great message that the angel brings to Joseph. And let me just tell you that um, it wasn't all relief from there on out. Even though Joseph had the greatest privilege of any father in the history of the world, uh, it didn't mean that things got easy. Uh, he didn't get to go home. Been on a long, tiresome journey. I was two weeks in South America, November 29th, December 12th. Man, I was ready to go home. I had a great time. I saw stunning, fabulous vistas. I saw tremendous ministry, not done by me, but done by the colleague who went with me and the missionary we, we went to visit. It was, it was, it was thrilling. But man, I was ready to get home. Can you imagine that trip to? Um, Bethlehem and, and the ordeal, and, and uh, then you find out you don't get to go home. Well, can I go home tomorrow? No, you can't go home tomorrow. Can I go home next week? No, you can't go home next week. Can I go home next year? No, you can't go home next year. Your life is not yours. It belongs to somebody else. Now this baby boy, who's not even yours biologically, He's going to be the center of your life and your experience. You know, sometimes it says at the end of this passage that he got up and did exactly what the angel told him to do. When you read the Bible, do you ever notice that sometimes we get up and do exactly what the, the biblical men and women get up and do exactly what the Lord tells them to do and things get harder? Moses told Pharaoh exactly what he said to tell them. And Pharaoh said, you know, up to now, we got the straw. You're going to get the straw from now on. Same quota. Joseph told his brothers exactly what God told him about the dreams. And they hated him. And they would have killed him if they hadn't made a profitable way to banish him. Just so we never see you again, brother. That's what really matters. Joseph did exactly what God told him to do. Can you imagine the shame? Do you realize that in John 8, it's very obvious that there was a rumor that Jesus was illegitimate? Have you ever noticed that in the language? John 8, you can bet that the people in Jerusalem, the powerful people who hated Jesus, they sent their representatives to Nazareth. They turned over every stone to try to get something on the Lord Jesus. And did you ever notice that place and that interplay at the end of John 8 between Jesus and his enemies where they say, we were not born of fornication. And who could Joseph and Mary explain what the real deal was to? Can you imagine trying to explain that? They just had to live with the implications of people knowing that she had conceived before they ever spent the night together. There's also the assignment of keeping her without marital privilege for a certain season. Our Catholic and Orthodox friends believe it was forever. The text is plain that it wasn't.
but it was for a season. How counterintuitive is God? He takes an aged couple. He says, I'm going to give you a child. Pretend you're on your honeymoon for 24 years. He takes a couple who are obviously in love, eager to get the family started, and he says, you live with her, but don't you touch her. You protect her. How counterintuitive is our God, and how great and mysterious are his assignments. Now we've got to wind this up, but let me just say, how is the text, uh, so, so spiritually God's doing something. He's doing something, he's up to something. He's doing something redemptive. One more little thing. Last time I was here, I talked about how until Jesus arrived, the Old Testament was a puzzle. And nobody knew how the, how the pieces fit because when we work a puzzle, we've got a, what I call a target image. There's a picture of what it's supposed to look like when it's finished. But think of the puzzle of the Old Testament with no real target image. You've got a Messiah. Some of the verses say he's going to be a conqueror. Some of the verses say he's going to be rejected and he's going to die. How do you square that circle? How do those puzzle pieces fit together? Uh, you got a man called Melchizedek. He's a priest and a king, but a priest can't be a king. Yeah, but Melchizedek was. Well, what's that about? How does that work? Numbers 21, Israel complains against God, and God sends death in the camp through uh, flaming serpents. And what's the remedy? Well, first of all, I want you to break the second commandment. I want you to fashion a graven image. Secondly, I want you to do something I abhor, which looks like idolatry. I want you to look at that image. And the third thing, I want the image to be of, a, of the cursed animal, the serpent. I mean, there's three outrages right there. How on earth could a holy God require that his people do those three things in just that way as a remedy for sin? What's that about? Then all of a sudden in Bethany, the target image walks on the stage. What's that Isaiah 7:14 verse about? It has two fulfillments. There's a fulfillment in the immediate generation. The Hebrew word means young maiden, a young maiden of marriageable age who can get married, lose her virginity, and then have a baby. But the Greek word translated in the Septuagint is the word for virgin, parthenos. And a parthenos cannot conceive without male agency. And when the ancient Jews translated the biblical Hebrew into Greek, they proved that they knew, no, that's going to be a woman who's never been touched by a man. But what is that about? How does that puzzle piece fit? And then all of a sudden, the target image is delivered in Bethlehem. And here's the virgin-born Messiah who would conquer sin, who would be perfect, who would please his father, and he would be rejected and tortured to death. And then in that interview with Nicodemus in John 3, 
And then in verse 14, where Jesus says to him, hey, you remember that snake, that brazen serpent who was held up on that pole? You remember that bizarre passage in Numbers 21? That was about me. I'm the one who will be cursed. I will bring deliverance from death through my death. And that's how my people Israel will be forgiven. Finally, just say something about the, the consequentiality of it. Is it a consequential story? You know, I'm not known for my pioneering gifts. I, I'm in a family who love to go camping. It, to me, it's a, it's a genetic oddity, the way that happened. And uh, my idea of a wilderness experience is sleeping with the window open. And when, when, I was in, when I was in Chile, except for the last night, I spent, spent 13 nights in different rooms, all of which you had to build a, a fire in the wood-burning stove. And up to that point, my, the only fires I ever uh, started were accidental. And, uh, and so usually it was cold by the time I got up, and, and, uh, but sometimes there were just a little glow left or maybe embers, and uh, that, that became an important part of my daily routine and, and my, my, my getting up routine. I, I was in Denver in about 1990, and I went to one of those large Presbyterian churches, Cherry something. I don't know if it was Cherry Creek, but it was Cherry something. Don't remember the uh, pastor's name, don't remember the church's name, don't remember the text, don't remember the topic, but I remember an illustration made a big impression on me. He said, a piece of the sun the size of a dime will kill a grown man at a distance of 300 miles. That's how powerful the sun is. This narrative has not lost its power to warm, to beautify, to ennoble, to transform, to change. There's something here far greater than embers which have grown cold or a faint glow after the fire goes out all night. No, there's something in this story that's so stupendous that it can change the world, beginning with our hearts, at a distance of 2,000 years. And it's undeniable. It's absolutely undeniable. The thing never wearies. It never wears. It's ne it's never I'm not saying that the cultural uh, accretions and the, the barnacles on the hull of the ship called Christmas that we tack on there with great, and tackiness is, is a good word for it. I'm not saying we don't tire of those. I mean, let me promise you, if I never in my life again hear Jingle Bell Rock, <laughs> or rocking around the Christmas tree, or even, pardon me, He's a native son, I know, or even Blue Christmas. 
I shan't be bitter, okay. I'll get over it, okay. But the story at its core, the story of a prophesied baby born to a virgin girl who became a crucified Savior, the story of the angels, the story of the magi, the story of the shepherds, the story of the manger, the story of the swaddling clothes. It never wearies us. It always edifies us. Why? Because the thing is true. Because the thing is of God. Because the baby is God's only son. And earth's only Savior. Heavenly Father, we thank you that um, most of the people gathered here have believed the truth of that gospel for years. I pray for those who do not. I pray that they would realize that we don't get an unlimited number of Christmas seasons. That one year we'll celebrate our last Christmas. And none of us know for sure when. So, Lord, if there's ever, if there is an unsurrendered heart in the building, may that heart bow at the manger and at the cross and trust the wounds of Jesus and the shed blood for the forgiveness of sin. For we ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.